Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Second Opinion. The theme for this episode is The Body Politics. Medical science is an ever-advancing and exact science. Doctors are highly knowledgeable about the body and how it works. Medical treatment is formulated to resolve a patient's health problems. Health organisations are focused on improving the population's health and well-being and government policy decisions are focused on the prevention of illness and disease. However, some see modern medical science as a fundamentally flawed and deceptive practice. Pharmaceutical drugs and vaccines as unnecessary, toxic and potentially lethal. National and global health bodies as criminal operations for the big pharma cartel and governments as totalitarian regimes waiting for the next health crisis to exploit. Here to provide a second opinion on these matters is Dr. Andrew Kaufman, a medical doctor, natural healing consultant, inventor, public speaker, forensic psychiatrist and expert witness. Dr. Kaufman graduated from the Medical University of South Carolina and has a Bachelor of Science from MIT in Molecular Biology. Andrew Kaufman has conducted and published original research and lectured, supervised and mentored medical students, residents and fellows in all psychiatric specialities and has held several faculty positions. Andrew Kaufman has been qualified as an expert witness in local, state and federal courts. Dr. Kaufman has held leadership positions in academic medicine and professional organisations, as well as running a startup company to develop a medical device he invented and patented. In this interview, we talk about virus discovery, the mRNA COVID vaccine, bioweapons, and a new vision for self-healing and self-care. Many people are familiar with your work, and especially since 2020, of course, when you came out and blew the whistle on the COVID hoax. But for people who are not familiar with you, could you just kind of give a brief breakdown of how you got started and... and um, and then what made you start questioning the virus? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I am a physician, an MD, a forensic psychiatrist, uh, board certified, and I had been uh, basically observing that uh, patients were not getting better with psychiatric uh, medication treatments. And so I found a book by Kelly Brogan uh, several years back, which um, described similar conclusions from the medical literature that I had uh, drawn about antidepressants and such. And she presented a nutritional protocol that um, she described as being very, very successful. And I had the opportunity to try this uh, myself and with a, a former colleague who was suffering with some anxiety issues. And it was the first time I saw a patient uh, with an anxiety problem just go into like a complete remission as if they were cured of the problem. And so that led me to spend uh, about three years studying um, natural medicine and uh, kind of separating myself slowly from the uh, regular system. So in my clinical work, I was really just taking all my patients off psychiatric medications and trying to use other strategies that were more effective and was actually having some success. And I was looking at other areas of medicine and just questioning the science of it because there are many, many uh, contradictions that I saw in my field. And I also had previous experience in cancer medicine. And I saw that 
uh, really nobody was cured from cancer treatment. And in fact, it really seemed to make people sicker and perhaps, and perhaps even hastens their death. And there's data to support that as did you well. Not, did you not come across anyone who was cured at all? At well, there were a few cases, but they were specific um, exceptions to the rule because these were rare diseases. Like, for example, there's one type of um, AML leukemia called promyelocytic leukemia, and it's very uncommon. I saw maybe two cases. But if you treat those people it, actually with high-dose vitamin A, <laughs> interestingly, they have a special form of it they call transretinoic acid, but it's essentially vitamin A, they are cured of that disease. So not from chemotherapy, yeah. in other words. So there yeah. were a few cases like that, but I didn't see anyone um, be cured or have any meaningful improvement from chemotherapy treatments. Isn't, which it, isn't it incredible that um, the two main treatments you get for cancer can actually cause cancer? Yes, and they do. In fact, um, I have uh, relatives who have died from this, like, they uh, got treatment for one cancer with chemo and radiation, and then about 10 years later, developed what's called myelodysplastic syndrome, which is a kind of cancer of the bone marrow, and it ultimately results in leukemia, and that's that's what killed uh, this person. So, so it is quite ironic and contradictory. Yeah. And you know, there's, um, for example, a, a survey of oncologists who give this therapy, and uh, over 90% of them would not give this treatment to themselves or their family. So it, it's quite interesting to be in a profession where you wouldn't actually take your own medicine. Where, where could people find that survey? Oh, I, I don't have it, um, uh, you know, on my uh, archive necessarily, but I first learned about it. I did look at it. I first learned about it from the documentary series, The Truth About Cancer. Okay. So you could definitely uh, find it in there and then you can uh, look at it yourself. So what what made you start questioning the virus then? Was it, well, was it just a, an extension of your exploration into natural healing? Well, no, I actually wasn't really questioning it. I just wanted to learn about it because I had seen some unusual things happen. So, you know, first I heard about uh, Wuhan, China and, you know, saw images of people collapsing on the street. And then I was traveling um, domestically um, in February and I saw people wearing masks in the airport in California. And I thought, you know, I've never seen this before. I've got to find out what's going on. And so I just began reading the papers. Uh, you know, I said, I want to start at the beginning. Let me go to the scientific paper where they describe, you know, discovering this virus, and then I'll, you know, see where that takes me and, and look at everything just so I could learn what's going on, because I saw some unusual things happening and, and, you know, just being really worried, is this something real? Could it come, you know, to the United States? Will it affect me? And it wasn't until I was reading these papers that I really uh, was questioning things. Um, and then, uh, fortunately, there was also, um, many other doctors and scientists who began to question the same things uh, during the AIDS pandemic uh, situation. And so uh, that was really helpful to learn from some of them what they had discovered. And it was very similar to what I had seen, which is essentially that the experiments that they conducted 
claiming to discover the virus actually couldn't possibly discover a virus. It was just like the wrong experiment. And that's what made me start questioning things. And of course, the first thing I questioned was myself. Am I misinterpreting this? You know, am I going crazy? Am I seeing something? Uh, why am I seeing such such different things? But I realized that almost nobody looks at those papers. Like they never describe those in any of my medical training, of course. And, um, you know, if you went and asked doctors or scientists who weren't virologists, how do they, you know, discover a virus? They would tell you something very, either they would say, I have no idea. Uh, or they might say, you know, just using their scientific reasoning, uh, they would say something very, very different from how it's actually purported to be done. Yes. Um, and I just wish that, I mean, I, I've learned how to discover viruses and watching your work and Dr. Tom Cowan's work, who I've also interviewed and and then doing my own research and checking it out. And it's actually a lot simpler than people would think to understand. Yes. Uh, would, would acknowledge that and then look at the papers because it seems to me that people are not interested in the science. I've tried to talk about it to people, they don't want to know. And all it seems to take to convince people there's a virus is to flash numbers on the screen every day. Well, you have to realize that um, the people that you're referring to aren't really interested in learning about the world and they're not really open to yeah. synthesizing information into their own opinions. They're essentially, you know, hypnotized or brainwashed um, or programmed, however you want to describe it, into, you know, fear state and then to receive whatever information comes from the official authoritarian sources and anything. And that information, by the way, it, it relieves some of the fear from that anxiety, which is why they cling on to it so tightly. Yeah. But that's, you know, when someone's emotions are running the show like that, you can't um, op be open to uh, considering new possibilities. Uh, so, you know, I think it's not it's not the inability to understand anyone of common intelligence is capable of understanding the you know, the reasoning of these scientific experiments. Now, it's a little bit different reading the paper because they use all of this crazy language. But, uh, you know, that's what essentially been what I consider my main contribution is just uh, translating that language into something that you can understand. So. How are viruses discovered? Because I know you've explained this a million times, but there are a couple of questions I want to ask you on it that I don't think you've been asked. So just briefly explain, first of all, how it should be done and then what they actually call virus discovery. Right. Well, you know, it's pretty simple how it should be done uh, to discover any new organism. You simply find where it is in nature and then you uh, can, if you possible, you try to observe it in its natural setting because then you can see its behavior and its uh, role in the in the uh, ecosystem. And uh, then if, when you want to study it more closely, you take it out of that natural environment just by itself, right, isolated. Yeah. And then you can examine it more closely. Uh, usually this is done in a laboratory. You would say, what's it made of? Right. What does it look like on the inside? Um, let's do a chemical analysis of it. We can pull the genetic material out and sequence it, um, all these kinds of things. And so that that's basically how you would do it. Now, since uh, the alleged virus is a submicroscopic particle, it's on the nano scale, right? Billions of a meter or 10 to the minus nine meters. So um, we can't just pluck it out with our hands like we could, you know, if we discovered, um, you know, the naked mole rat. 
or something like that. Yeah. Uh, we have to use some laboratory procedures to separate it from all the other things. And those are readily available. Um, in fact, you can even find review papers uh, related to exosomes of how you can purify them. Um, and uh, you, it's in a standard microbiology lab book uh, talking about bacteriophages. Um, also, these techniques of using um, high-speed uh, density gradient ultracentrifugation is one of the main techniques. So what do they actually do? So that's really interesting. So what they actually do is they, so like, let's, let's just talk about it in terms of the rainforest for a minute to understand it a little bit better. So let's say that we wanted to discover um, an animal that, you know, lived in the rainforest. Instead of finding that animal and just taking it out of the rainforest, what we would do is take a one square mile section of the rainforest, everything in there, <laughs> right, um, and grab it all together in a in a big bag, okay. But then we wouldn't actually take that one mile section and then take the animal out then either. We take the whole bag and add it to essentially another jungle, which is a foreign cell culture. Yeah. And and then um, we do some other things. We add some poisons to the foreign cell culture, and we also take away most of the nutrition and put it on a starvation diet. And then we see that that, new, that jungle that we put this uh, one square mile swath of animals and plants into is now suffering and it's dying. And we see evidence of it dying and we say, there's our proof that an animal in that one square mile uh, swath of rainforest, um, you know, exists and is dangerous. Now, of course, what you're talking about is the starvation and the use of antibiotics in cell cultures, which is uh, breaks down the tissue. And then they say that that is caused by the virus, even though they've never seen the virus and they don't purify, isolate the virus from the body sample that they inoculate onto the cells in the first place. So the logic is just flawed. But it's, it's very flawed. Yeah. Um, but one question that one, uh, a couple of your detractors have, have said uh, on that point is that um, culture goes through several passages. And so what they've said is if there was a if it was a toxin or starvation that was causing the problem, then that would only be the case in one passage and it wouldn't you wouldn't keep getting the same results in, in subsequent passages. Well, um, you know, that. so first of all, for most of the experiments that they call viral isolation, they these are short term experiments. They don't do passages when they make uh, manufacture vaccines. They often do. And sometimes they do in some of these experiments. And what that means is that you take essentially the fluid from the first cell culture and then you use that to inoculate a second cell culture and you grow that until there's damage to the cells and then you do it you can pass it to you know as many more as you want and sometimes they call this attenuation of the virus but if you treat all the cell cultures with the same conditions in other words the antibiotics and the starvation diet then you will get the same results no matter how many times you pass it through because the thing is that the results of the and the damage to the cell culture by the way it's, it's known as cytopathic effects or cpes yeah. Yeah. but the truth is that the cpes are 
from the experimental procedure itself. They have nothing to do with adding a source of virus material. And the experiment has been done at least two times. And this is essentially what would be a control experiment. So first of all, you say, well, why don't virologists just do a control experiment? I mean, you know, when I submitted papers for publication, if it didn't have a control group, they wouldn't even look at it. They'd send, send it back to me. So why do virologists never do control experiments? So the, it was done once by N, John Enders, who is the one who invented this uh, laboratory procedure. And uh, he studied measles first in the 50s and found that even without adding measles, they still got the same particles and the same, same CPEs. And then very recently, Stefan Lanka uh, with some colleagues conducted this experiment. Um, just with a cell culture, antibiotics, and starvation, um, with no source of virus added whatsoever, and he also got CPEs. So you can see that this is that's all they're proving is that they've done this experiment that produces CPEs, with, no matter what you add to it. <laughs> yeah. Um, do they not see any um, results in the culture? before they do the starvation and the poisoning? Does, it, does, does the tissue stay healthy or, or are there any effects at all? Absolutely. In fact, the, the typical types of cells that they use are ones that grow readily in the laboratory. Like, for example, Vero cells, which are the um, kidney um, cells from a, a type of monkey, those grow so well when you give them a full culture media without antibiotics that you have to you have to um, take them thin them out every few days because they they grow so much they overcrowd the container that you have them in the tissue flask so you have to take like a bunch of them out and put them in a new flask because they're so hardy right and that's why they use these um, types of uh, cell cultures because unlike bacteria or uh, fungal cell cultures which are very easy to grow um, in a lab, you just give them, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and they grow great. Um, even if you just put, you know, garbage, they grow, right? <laughs> but um, when it comes to mammalian cell cultures, trying to grow, you know, cells from animals, they're much, much more difficult because inside the environment of the organism, you know, they're constantly bathed in blood and there's a lot of complexity to what's going on and other systems supporting it. They're not single cell organisms. So it's very difficult to simulate that environment in the laboratory. So when they find a certain type of cell that grows well in cultures, they exploit it commercially and, and you know, um, make tons of it and sell it for all these different kinds of experiments because it grows readily. What methods were used before the cell culture methods? I know you and Tom Cowan are saying that they've never discovered a virus. So how did they claim to have discovered viruses before that? Well, they they um, it's interesting. So they, they did do those experiments, but they could not point to a specific image of a virus. So they did experiments where they, they took body fluids and they were, um, would filter them to remove cells. Okay. Like back, including bacteria or fungal cells. And they were just left with, you know, basically a mixture of chemicals and very, very small particles, which could, you know, most likely just come from the animal that the sample comes from, because we all, when we're sick, all of our cells make these particles of that size, that description containing the same genetic material. And so 
they couldn't find any distinct particles after the electron microscope was invented, and they were very much about to give up on viruses as something tangible. But what they did notice, and this was, you know, first noticed uh, back in, I believe, the 1800s when studying the tobacco mosaic virus, is that, right, they could take um, tobacco material that that had this disease, right, they called it a virus, but at that time, they meant virus meant poison. So they thought it was some kind of chemical or protein, uh, or like a protein, that actually transmitted the illness. And so they chopped up this diseased tobacco plant in a blender, and then they could filter it and get the fluid and put that on another plant. And then that plant would exhibit the same illness. So they could essentially that's and that supported, you know, their theory that there was um, some transmissible element in there. They called it a virus, but they really meant that it was some kind of poison. So not they never thought of it as a organism or something with genetic material. At that time, they had uh, the the theory of genetics hadn't really been uh, expounded yet. So it was essentially a poison uh, is what they described. And um, but with other experiments, they had to go to great lengths and, and couldn't actually transfer the illness. Like, for example, polio, you know, polio. Um, was perhaps the the main justification that people give for vaccines, right, is the supposed success of the polio vaccine. But they had this theory, you know, that there was a virus, the polio virus, because poliomyelitis actually means a specific type of lesion in the spinal cord. And it doesn't refer to the virus uh, directly, but they found, they thought that this may be a virus because they didn't, um, you know, look for the obvious. And so they did these experiments and they said it was an ent- type of enterovirus, which is one that that lives in the gut. So what they did is they took uh, the spinal cords of some children who had died from polio and they chopped up the spinal cord, you know, thinking that it would contain this virus. And then they fed it to monkeys thinking that, OK, it's a it's a gut virus. So it it spreads, you know, through in you know, the gut, so you would swallow it, and the monkeys didn't get sick. So then um, they tried other things, like they tried injecting it and stuff, and still the monkeys didn't get sick. So they ended up cutting open the skull and putting a bunch of this, you know, blenderized, uh, dead, diseased spinal cord into directly into the brain. And then, of course, the monkeys showed some neurologic problems yeah and that that's how they you know said that uh po- they proved that there's a transmissible polio virus yeah so how did they discover like influenza or the common cold because that goes back to the 1800s if i'm correct maybe longer how did they think that they found that then. Well, they, they they knew that people got the, a cold and influenza, but they had no idea that uh, what caused it. And in fact, um, for example, during the um, Spanish flu, they actually thought it was a bacteria that caused it at that time. So, you know, it came much later after there was already this kind of pathway for the experience expansion and proliferation of uh, virus discovery and virus-related diseases, which is inextricably linked with uh, vaccines. So, so 
before they the concept of viruses when people got the symptoms that we call a cold did they just think that was like a, a poison or a toxin or is it you know what what did they think it was the humans or <laughs> yeah well i mean i think uh, you're going to get a lot of different answers depending on what time period you look at and what culture uh, yeah. you look to so for example if you looked at chinese medicine they had absolutely no concept of germ theory whatsoever. So they had other explanations like that there was a blockage in the flow of qi, uh, for example. Uh, now, I'm not saying that that's the specific explanation for a cold because I don't, haven't studied Chinese medicine, but, but they would have a, you know, a, a, they have a totally different theoretical basis of understanding illness. So they have a different, totally different type of explanation for it. And so did many other people. You know, if you look back at the colonial era when people, the uh, explorers spent a long time at sea, they were developing scurvy. And for many years, they thought that it was passed from person to person and was some type of agent, you know, that that spread from person to person. And then ultimately they discovered it, that it had nothing to do with that. It was a deficiency of vitamin C. So, you know, the conceptions of these things can be, uh, you know, easily misguided uh, just based on casual observation and reliance on dogma. Now, they also have in these culture experiments what they call mock infected cultures. Which is what they say <laughs> that we um, we infected this, you know, the culture uh, It's kind of like a control experiment. But I well, know you it, talked before about the problem it, with that. Yeah, well, it may be like a control experiment, but in none of the papers that I've seen uh, where they mention this, do they describe what they did? So there's no way to tell what they did. But I, what I think they did is that they treated the cell culture differently um, in those experiments um, because they said, oh, well, if we're only adding, let's say they were just adding phosphine buffered, phosphate buffered saline to a cell culture, right, instead of the uh, sputum. Well, they might say, well, oh, we know it's sterile, so we don't need to use antibiotics. So they don't use antibiotics in that culture. Well, that, of course, will change the results because that's the poison that's necessary to cause the CPEs. So since they don't describe it in the procedure or anywhere in the paper, that makes me, uh, you know, very skeptical that what they're doing is BS, because if it, if it, if it wasn't BS now, you know, one thing you might consider doing, because it seems like you're uh, pretty on top of these things, is um, email the authors and ask them the exact procedure that the mock infected uh, sample went through. Would they, would they respond then? Because I'm not a, I'm not a scientist. I'm no, a well, they uh, they typically respond um, to inquiries. In fact, when when journalists maybe. Well, I I don't think it matters what you are. If you phrase the question in an intelligent way, they'll assume that you will. Um, you know, the right person to ask it. <laughs> I mean, you know, Torsten Engelbrecht, who yeah. he is a journalist, but not a scientist. He has no credentials uh, that would give him credibility in the academic community, but he was able to get uh, responses yeah, from authors. That, yeah. So, I, you know, I don't think there's, you know, these, these guys are not um, necessarily big ego celebrities. They're just, you know, uh, guys out there and they figure if someone takes the time to read their paper because they, their papers don't get read by that many people then they'll yeah. take the time to answer the query because usually it's other scientists who want to you know um, get ideas about their field or or understand their own research better you know getting getting a tips or things like that oh hey did you do it this way 
maybe we should do it that way too. Kind of, you know, it's really that kind of collegial uh, correspondence. Yeah. So do you think then that, um, and I guess it's kind of an obvious answer, but I'll ask it anyway, because I, I think it's probably a question people would be thinking themselves is the vast majority of virologists don't know the flaws in what they do, even though you would think it would be obvious, we can understand it. You know, what, what, why do you think they, is it that they don't notice it or that, that they are thinking about paying the rent or, you know, why, why do they carry on doing these experiments with the obvious flaws that they have, do you think? Well, you know, there could be many, many reasons. And, and I'm, I've not been a virologist that I can really talk about their experience uh, so much, but I can talk about the same thing in psychiatry, because I'll tell you right now that with a, a couple of very rare exceptions, there's actually no evidence whatsoever that the treatments that they use in psychiatry and psychiatry provide any benefit. And in fact, there's lots of evidence that they cause significant harm, um, including suicide and including premature death. Yet virtually every psychiatrist out there continues to prescribe them, um, not just in moderation, but in excess. Uh, you know, I typically see people that are prescribed five, six, seven, eight different psychiatric medications in combination. And they've, of course, never been studied that way. Um, there's no uh, recommendations that say to do that, but these folks are so um, put in such a situation that all they can see is that's all I can do and I'm just gonna keep doing it and doing it uh, despite whatever the outcome is. And it, it seems to me like insanity, but I'll tell you some of the forces are, one is that, you know, People come up and respect them. They pay them a lot of money. They need them to satisfy various roles. And so that supports the notion that what you're doing is the right thing, right? They, they don't have any time to read any science, and most of them don't even know how to read the studies anyway. Um, because they, you know, people who go to medical school don't have to have experience with science. Um, in fact, they kind of encourage people to be more well-rounded and not just, you know, like somebody who is all focused on one thing. And so as a result of that, you have many doctors have never set foot in a laboratory or done a data analysis or uh, looked at various types of research bias, or they may not know much about statistics. They, they teach some cursory statistics in medical school, but it's it's yeah. very basic. So you know, it's like the, there's no ability to understand uh, really what's going on. And then the system is so fragmented that many times you don't see people over time. So you don't know how they're responding, uh, you know, to certain things. And then, of course, you're all of this um, education that you're required to do. They call it continuing medical education in order to stay licensed, in order to, to stay board certified. And all of that information is all um, in cahoots with the pharmaceutical industry, and it's basically just repeating the same messages over and over again. And so then you have psychiatrists who continue to do the same thing despite it being harmful and not effective. And I think, you know, the same thing is probably happening among virologists. They can keep their job, keep getting grants. Right now, they're being, you know, definitely elevated in their status uh, because of uh, the pandemic. So, you know, why would you try to rock the boat and sacrifice that? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's great to have a doctor like yourself 
say that because um, people seem to have this idea that that um, doctors are um, all knowing. You know that they they understand all of this when no, they have no idea. Just from, just from logic alone, you would you would you would think surely in terms of virology, they must notice. Some of them must have questions, even if they don't ask. Listen, there is a sense among physicians, or there was, generally speaking, that, you know, viruses are like this, you know, black hole, really, because what happens, you have a, a patient comes into the hospital with an unexplained illness, right? What do they say? Oh, it must be a virus, right? What virus? No idea, you know, because like any unexplained illness almost gets attributed to that. It's just just like this, uh, you know, convenient thing to say. But you know, none of them know anything about uh, the scientific experiments that are done to, you know, learn about these things or or really what's going on with any of these illnesses. Now, I know you and Dr. Tom Cowan have pointed out that what are called virus particles are breakdown products from the poison-starved tissue culture. And they have different names people use exosomes, extracellular vesicles. In another study uh, that came out last August from, uh, it's published in Kidney 360, where they had kidney biopsies that they looked at under the electron microscope. And many of these were from years before COVID existed. And none of these patients had any suspected viral illness. They had, they had renal failure, kidney failure. Yeah. And they found the same exact particles with spikes yeah. Yeah. Um, in those uh kidney biopsies and no, they no, said yeah. that it was a protein called clathrin yes in that case yeah. now i'm not sure i don't remember how they determined it was clathrin but you know that's a totally different explanation for the same thing now the, the issue with the receptors that uh, dr cowan was talking about comes from electron microscopy because we can see you can see now you can't see individual molecules or like individual amino acids but you but proteins, large proteins can be seen as, you know, dots or granules on electron micro microscopy. Yeah. And you see this, for example, you know, in other structures that are described or they claim that these things are proteins. So why is it that there is never any of these things on any cell membrane of any cells under electron microscopy? Never once do you see them. So if because what they tell us in terms of the molecular biology is that every cell is basically saturated with various types of receptors and transmembrane proteins, right? Like there's the ion channels and then the receptor for all their functioning. And, and much, uh, you know, almost all of pharmacology is really through interaction with receptors. Yeah. So why is it that we can't see any of these things in any image for any kind of cell anywhere? It's pretty suspicious. <laughs> so the the way that they discover these things is very indirect. It's all, you know, it's all through fingerprints. They looked at fingerprints of something and they said it was receptors, but they didn't actually show the real thing. So like you can make, for example, you can make a recombinant ACE protein, ACE2 protein, and you can make a recombinant spike protein, and you can mix those two proteins together and show that they bind each other. 
But what does that have to do with what actually happens in someone's body? Like, show me, where are the ACE receptors on the cell membrane? Where's the picture of it? And then where is the spike protein on the virus? Where's the virus, right? There's no virus at all. So there's no, you know, there can't be a spike protein on it. But, you know, if you could show those things, that would be a different story, right? But, uh, but that's not what anyone's even looked at because they don't have any virus to work with to do any experiments on the reason i wanted to ask you about the receptors is because if there are no receptors then how can a virus make contact with cells it, it doesn't work so you know well you could come up you could easily come up with another theory um you could say yeah. that the spike protein drills a hole in the membrane and it gets in that way or, you know, it's a spike, right? It can puncture things. I mean, how does anything get in inside or outside the cell uh, yeah. without receptors? You know, we, the, the thing is, we don't really know the answer to these questions. I know you say that, again, these parts, you say they're like kind of tiny little particles. But when you look at certain electron, electron microscope images, what they say are certain viruses like Ebola, for example, from images I've seen, they're kind of like long, thin worm-like shapes what what are they if they're not the breakdown of tissue where are they coming from yeah i'm not i haven't really looked at i've seen um you know those images that you're talking about and it's really just ebola that is unique like that and i i really don't know what to make of that i'd have to to look at the the specific papers um you know to see how that was produced and then maybe come up with ideas can viruses be genetically engineered and released because um you know while we're on the subject of what they do in laboratories one of the uh, claims is going around at the moment of course is that uh the covid virus was engineered in a lab and it was released is there a mechanism through which they could do could make something even if it's not a virus could make something maybe a toxin or something and release it in the air and it would spread or or is there just no mechanism for that well well, you know, the first point is the most important, which is, you know, if if there is some engineered thing out there, well, where's the evidence of it? I don't yeah. see any papers saying that we've identified this or that or the other thing. So it's, you know, I, I believe it's a false narrative that is meant to keep people worried about viruses. You know, and in terms of, you know, so if there's something that exists in nature, right, then then humans can try and replicate it synthetically, right? And this is the basis of the pharmaceutical industry, right? That uh, many times they find things that are exist in nature and they try to take one molecule and then make a synthetic version of it and patent it. You, you can't just make, you know, like it's different to just make something up that doesn't exist in nature, then, you know, the sky's the limit. I mean, that's the, you know, right, innovation, invention. So maybe someone can make up something in a laboratory that can, you know, be put out in the air and invade people and kill them. But where's the evidence of it if they've done so? Certainly there's no there's no model like, you know, what all none of the viruses that are alleged to cause disease even exist in nature, let alone do they actually cause any illness. So you can't model it after something that doesn't exist. You have to create something from scratch. If they released a toxin in the air, um, as far as I'm aware, you can't isolate a toxin. So, sure you can. You you can isolate a toxin, absolutely. Okay. 
In fact, uh, I'm sure that it would be purified before it was released, you know, like chemical weapons, right? This, what you're talking about is chemical warfare, and it's been done, right, with mustard gas and sarin gas and many other uh, agents, and all of those things can be isolated and purified, of course. What, from, from a person inside the Yes. Uh, well, yeah, because if, if there's a toxin, I mean, it depends if it's how quickly it's metabolized and when you get to it, but uh, generally you can, well, you know, so the original isolation would have to be, you know, you, you have to find the poison in the person's body who exhibited the illness. And of course, you know, there are methods of purifying all types of chemical poisons. So, and then also there's also chemical detection methods because these things have already been characterized. When, what we're, when we're talking about viruses, you know, and discovering a virus that causes a disease, we're talking about something that's never been discovered before. If you want to analyze someone that dies of cyanide poisoning, we already know that cyanide is a real thing. It, we, ha we have it in its pure form. We've got all kinds of analytical chemistry on it, right, and all the forms of it. And um, we know exactly what happens when you put it in a body, right, that it affects the uh, hemoglobin and, um, and, and other things. Sorry, I may be thinking of carbon monoxide, but however it works, we know exactly how it works and we know what, what the evidence of it and its unique things like, you know, we might find uh, met hemoglobin or other findings like that to clue us in. But it's already been studied and characterized. It's not something, you know, that's unheard of. But you know, if you want to get a lot of people sick with a chemical that you put into the air, it's um, what happens is that anything in the air gets diluted according to the inverse square law. So, in other words, if you're standing um, two feet away from it, where it's most concentrated, the concentration two feet away will only be one fourth. And if you're standing 100 feet away, it'll be one ten thousandth. So, you, you know, if you want to deploy something like that across a population, it would be really, really difficult. You'd have to, you know, drop it every 25 feet or something like that to get into, you know. Now, if you wanted to affect people in a closed environment, then you could put it into a ventilation system. And this is essentially what Legionnaire's disease is, that there's some kind of microorganism, the Legionella bacteria, perhaps, that grows in uh, an air conditioning system like inside the the unit and then it, it produces a toxin and that toxin gets into the ventilation and circulates through the building and people breathe it and they get pneumonia right so that's a good example of something like that but it's only in that closed system that it really spreads to all the people i mean i hate thinking about this because it's like diabolical you know how do you uh, get a bunch of people sick. Um, so I don't recommend that. It's not something I want to do, but I don't think anyone else is, has done it in any clandestine way either um, right now. I think they've just given the appearance that people are sick. And then in certain places, they've done certain things um, with the medical policy to increase uh, death counts. And they certainly have influenced economic and other policies like taking people's freedom away that has caused people to um, yeah. suffer and die like through suicide yeah. and overdoses and things like that. So could you purify a toxin from if they let's say they put it in the water supply could you still purify it out of someone if it's kind of in a, a liquid form or would it dissolve and already cause the effects by then? 
I'm not, yeah, so, not saying this has happened, but it's just it's just questions that there's a whole field of chemistry called natural products chemistry. Okay. And what they do is they take various organisms, plants or animals, and they separate out all the different um, chemical compounds to study them. You know, a lot of times they're trying to find medicines or other useful compounds. But, yeah, absolutely. There are so many methods for purifying chemicals out of, you know, solvents or mixtures that it, it's extremely common and, and, yes, readily available. Okay. I mean, it, sometimes it can be very challenging scientifically, yeah. but but not for the standard things that we already know about, that we already have protocols, you know, to do that. And there are some very powerful techniques like HPLC and such that can you know, uh, show the presence of things even in a mixture because it, they'll, they'll separate them out during the chromatography. One of the um, ways that we are um, hit with toxins is chemtrails and spray from jet planes. I wonder, could they spray the vaccine from jet planes if, if they felt they needed to? Maybe they felt enough the population wasn't taking it. Could they do that? And I, I, I'm not sure if it could you know, how it would get in if it would be able to break through the barriers. I mean, there's a reason they give this in an injection form. But so I think, in the body. Yeah. yeah, I think it'd be very extremely difficult and possibly impossible. I mean, you know, why would they be pushing so hard to coerce everyone to accept these injections if they could just, you know, add it to what they already do on a regular basis, you know, just add it to the sprayer. That'd be much, much easier than, uh, you know, it may not be as lucrative, but it would be much simpler. So one of the um, claims about the vaccine is that it can change genetics. In your opinion, can the vaccine change the human genetics? And what would be the process to which it, it would do that? Well, this is a, a more challenging question. The, M the mRNA. Yeah, I know what you're getting at, but yeah. the, the thing is, uh, one, we don't really understand how our genetic systems work and because there's a major flaw in uh, the current dogma. And then secondly, you know, while it's stated that this technology is intended to have the recipients use their genetic machinery to make a foreign protein, it has yet to be clearly demonstrated that any recipients actually make that protein. So we don't even know if it really does what is intended and they purposely didn't do those studies on it because they wanted it to be regulated like a vaccine and not like a gene therapy. And the regulatory agencies let them get away with this. Um, so we really don't know what it's doing, but here's the, here's the problem with genetics. So the dogma of genetics says, right, that DNA gets transcribed to RNA, which gets translated to proteins, yeah. and that each protein is encoded for by one or more genes. Yeah. So, so just just stop there, because for people who are not familiar with that language, what does that mean in kind of everyday, you know, um, DNA for idiots language? Sure. Transcribing so, and translating. Right, yeah. So this is the idea that, you know, the code of the blueprint for all of our life functions are contained in the DNA. And they're specifically only in very small areas of our very, very long DNA called genes. Right. And each gene may be um, that the DNA is sequences. It's a code made up of four letters, which are bases. 
And um, so you might have several hundred or even a couple of thousand of these bases make up a sequence for one gene, which is said to code for a protein. And so there's an intermediary between the DNA and the protein, which is RNA, and it's essentially almost the same as DNA. We don't even need to get into the details. Um, but the important thing is the protein, because proteins are the molecules that do all the work in our body. They're all the enzymes that catalyze chemical reactions. They are all most of the structural elements of our body like the collagen, for example, that makes up uh, your bone and connective tissue, skin, hair and nails, etc. So we're told that, you know, every protein is encoded for by one of these genes and we pass these genes what down is, through what, generations. Sorry, what, what does encoding mean in simple language? Well, that the, the, se the sequence of the gene is a code that represents something, just like the letters in the alphabet are uh, when they're put together in a code that represents language. Okay. And so it's just the lang, you know, supposedly the language of life. And so three of those letters of bases code for one of the building blocks of the protein, which is the amino acid. And there's a different three letter sequence for each amino acid. They're called codons. And as the um, your cells read the code, they add one amino acid at a time to make the protein. Or that that's how we're told that it works. And we're told that all of the information or the code, which are the genes for each protein, um, are contained in our DNA that we pass down, you know, from generation to generation. And that's what makes us, you know, who we are and all the functions. But here's the big problem. And this is a very simple to recognize because it's it's arithmetic. So remember, I said there has to be one or more genes for every protein. Right. Some proteins are really big and they might have more than one gene, uh, a separate gene for different subunits of the protein. So there are about 100,000 different proteins in humans, yeah. but there are only 20 to 22,000 genes. So in other words, four out of five proteins, we have no idea how we know how to make them because they, they're not in our genes. Right. So if they're not in our genes, where does this information come from? Right. So this is kind of without knowing or studying the answer to that question. How could you know how an artificial genetic technology might affect that system? The um, talking of proteins, what do you make about the claims around the spike protein? They say that uh, there's shedding the spike protein and um, could it be the spike protein is being shed? Could it be pheromones? Could it be nanotechnology communication? What What are your thoughts? You on mean that? What, or, or what? none of the above? Some people attribute it to the spike protein. Some people attribute right. it. Right. Well, to now it. let me tell you first of all that shedding is um, is somewhat theoretical. Um, like we, there's no um, you know scientific agency or body or scientist that has studied this and and made a determination that this is what's going on. OK, so what we have is a lot of anecdotal evidence and we have uh, a lot of um, circumstantial evidence. And what I was getting at before with um, them taking shortcuts with the regulatory process as a vaccine instead of a gene therapy was that they're required to do specific testing for shedding issues. Um, 
because if if they use a gene therapy and the idea is you're causing a person who receives this therapy to make a foreign protein that's not human or some kind of foreign molecule and could if that foreign molecule were made by the recipient and were present in body fluids like sweat tears saliva right semen um, urine feces etc then it has the potential to be transferred to another person and then if it's something that is toxic it could have an adverse effect on that other person okay so what you're supposed to do is actually test all of those body fluids for the presence of this foreign gene product substance okay which would be the spike protein um, with this particular technology we're talking about but they didn't do any of these studies so there's only one study that i know of at all um, done to look is there actually spike protein in people who receive these technologies and it's a very small study out of canada that um, only looks at a few people and it only looks at the moderna technology and it does a very strange type of assay to detect the spike protein and i'm not sure that that's a valid uh um assay to be honest with you so i don't really give too much credence to that one paper but you know why there should be you know many studies looking at this because you know we so in other words i don't i'm not even sure that people who receive these injections actually make the spike protein in their body is there not any method of detecting there are readily readily available methods of detecting in fact um, i'm pretty sure you can go on many different uh websites and buy a ready-made western blot testing kit for the spike what, protein. what, what is the western blot uh, yeah a western blot is a, a two-step test that can detect proteins specific proteins where first you take a sample uh where you may have the protein and you separate the proteins out using gel electrophoresis which is you're applying an electrical field in a gel medium and the proteins move based on their charge to mass ratio um, through the gel medium and they separate and then you can see them in bands by because you use a dye to to uh, mix with the proteins so you can see where they migrate on the gel and then what you do is once you've uh, separated all the proteins on that gel, you bathe the gel in a solution of an antibody that's specific for a protein you're looking for. And usually it's attached to a fluorescent or, or a radioactive marker, some way to, to find it. Yeah. And um, so then basically it will bind with the protein on the gel if there's a band with that particular protein that's specific for the antibody and then you'll be able to see it using the fluorescence and you'll say boom it's present or absent it's just a presence or absence test it doesn't tell you the concentration you could do a different um experiments but it's a very easy um uh type of test to run it's been around for a long time i even ran these when i was in college you know back in the uh, early 90s late 80s so it's it's you know established technology ready-made just buy a kit um, and you can do it so um, you know any amateur scientists out there if you want to do this test yourself if you can some people will give you their body fluids <laughs> do you think that there's any other methods for which they could be shedding like pheromones or 
nanotechnology or some other some other kind of material or mechanism that they've implemented in the vaccines that could well, explain well, let me, what uh, yeah yeah i mean we we can speculate all day long about all kinds of uh things but we would just be using our imagination and i prefer to actually you know try to see what the evidence and data show yeah. so i was uh, well, well let me just add because i have some some evidence that might help um with this so i i was uh able to look at some survey research because, you know, this the, the shedding thing should be something that's part of their surveillance, right? But there there's no post-market surveillance for these products. It's all voluntary. So some people took it upon themselves to carry out a survey. And that, that's a good first step because it can identify if there's really a signal from shedding and it doesn't tell you how it may occur or what's the cause of it, but it can tell you if it's occurring at all. Okay, because you can't rely on people just telling you their experience because people misinterpret things all the time. Like I had um, two individuals got in touch with me, both thinking that they were experiencing uh, shedding symptoms. And in both cases, there was a clear alternative explanation. So um, so it's very easy to be mis. Uh, you know, misinterpret your own experience. But what happened in this survey, which is of 3,000 respondents who experienced some kind of symptoms um, that were uh, had some kind of, you know, relationship to being exposed to vaccinated people. And what what we found is uh, based on the timing of it, when we looked at the timing of it and the symptom experience that it's only in in intimate partners of the vaccinated who really have a signal that they might experience some kind of shedding related uh, problems. So this would include, you know, people who are exchanging body fluids through intimate contact, um, which is romantic, as well as nursing mother to baby. Okay. So those two conditions i think there is a possibility but you know we haven't seen evidence of people you know dropping dead or getting severely ill from this type of thing what what most of the anecdotal reports were related to uh menstrual issues yeah. and, and including miscarriage i believe which is quite serious i'm not i'm not trying to downplay that but i mean it wasn't as serious as the people who were directly vaccinated um, and this would make sense, but we but we can't really tell what the mechanism is. Now, a lot of people have the the anecdotal experience when they're around vaccinated people that they feel something's not right or they might even feel some bodily discomfort. And that could be explained by a number of ways. I mean, that could be an empathic response. It could be a nocebo type of response. If you believe that um, this shedding is a real possibility, you could actually make yourself sick through what's yeah. called the nocebo effect. And that, like there's an experiment done where they had people with cancer and they told them they were giving them chemotherapy, but they actually just gave them salt water and they experienced the side effects of chemotherapy, even though they didn't receive it, including having their hair fall out. So that's a very powerful effect. You know could find that study or that document. Um, yeah, well, I learned about that study on a very uh, good documentary about the placebo effect that um, I, I'm not recalling now, but I have it um, saved on my phone so I can give it to you for the show notes yeah. if you like it. 
But there's, you know, there's a lot of fascinating science about the placebo effect and how powerful it is. Yeah. So kind of changing subject slightly. Um, But again, you know, it it is on the subject of what can cause what. Um, There was was speculation uh, earlier on in this pandemic scenario where people were speculating that 5G maybe could cause some of the symptoms or including respiratory symptoms of, in some cases, not all of them, that they attribute to the virus. What's your thoughts on that? Well, once again, I would just say, where is the evidence of that? Um, you know, that's it. so, you know, 5G is a new technology. So it's no one can really say they have experience dealing with the health effects of it. We do know some things uh, about it from the science. Like we know that there is uh, some some laboratory animal research. I believe it's done with mice from the 70s that's been declassified. Uh, from the CIA, I think it was done in Russia, that showed that you can get multi-organ failure, that it blocks oxygen uptake by the mitochondria and it causes suppression of the bone marrow. But, you know, those things, none of those are respiratory symptoms. Um, So, and there won't, you know, there wasn't a problem with oxygen exchange. It was just with utilizing the oxygen that was in the blood uh, by the organs in that study. And then we know that some of the uh, the same technology that's in 5G has also been used to um, uh, for crowd control uh, yes. type of technologies. And you can even find YouTube videos that demonstrate that. Um, and they're very you know proud of, of how well it works. Yeah. Um, and then we know that millimeter waves um, like from the um, uh, scanners used at airports uh, has been studied and known to damage DNA. Um, but you know, so but, you know, one thing is like, where's the evidence of any, you know, cluster of illness that's different from any other year? And then where's the evidence, you know, that ties it to 5G? And it wouldn't be that difficult to ascertain that because the telecommunications companies, for example, they they had websites tracking exactly where they were doing their installations and turning the networks on. So you could easily find the area and then find a cohort of patients in that area who all became sick at the same time. And then you might have something. But I don't think you're going to find that because I don't think that that's an issue um, at this point. And in fact, my my opinion overall about the 5G strategy and is that it is not um, really tuned to cause major health problems. It is really about surveillance and the Internet of Things and the Internet of Bodies. And that's what it's in, intended to uh, be used for. But I think it could be used at, you know, at will or intermittently for uh, things like subduing people because we know it's already been used for that purpose. Um, so, you know, there's a unruly protesters on a certain street, for example, they could, you know, isolate the nearest 5G transmitter and crank up the power or tune the frequency to have some suppressive effect on the crowd. I think that's uh, highly possible. So is, is there anywhere people could find a study about the airport? scanners damaging dna or effects yeah well that that was done at los alamos national laboratory so it might be archived on their website about the i think they call the uh terahertz uh scanners used in the uh, in the airports what can people do then in their own lives to become healthier and take responsibility for their own health 
Well, that's an excellent question. Um, and um, it's really uh, relatively simple. Um, I would say just clean up your life. And I'll, I'll tell you specifically how to do that. Um, so I'll, I'll work on the body first, and then we'll get to the mind and spirit. Um, so with the body, start to eat clean, real food. And I mean, whole food that like, like it, um, like it is in nature, not processed. So stop buying things in packages and only get, you know, clean, um, plant type food that has uh, been either grown organically or by yourself or by a farmer who doesn't use chemicals and does things the right way. Uh, when it comes to meats, make sure that the animals are raised on their natural food source um, and not, um, you know, confined and just be, be given uh, soy and uh, corn type uh, feeds. And then uh, water is really, really important that you, first of all, drink enough. I mean, almost everyone I talk to is extremely dehydrated, and that would be uh, one quart per 60 pounds of body weight uh, minimum uh, per day. And drink water that is really clean, which um, you may have access to some kind of natural spring water that may be like this, but be very, very careful in making that determination. If you use reverse osmosis or distillation, those methods will guarantee uh, to remove all of the uh, toxic elements from the water. And then you may consider structuring your water uh, with something like the Analemma water wand, or there are many other ways to do this. You can look into that yourself. Um, and then make sure to take a trace mineral supplement because you won't be able to get enough trace minerals from food or water. Um, and that's the one supplement that I recommend everyone uh, takes on a daily basis. And of course, I have my own version of that called Shilajit, which I believe is the best, but you can look into that yourself. And then you need to focus on also um, some kind of movement, uh, you know, get out there and just walk around, participate in some kind of uh, sport or uh, leisure that gets you active and moving on a regular basis. And then, you know, in terms of taking care of your psychological and spiritual health, that I believe everyone should have um, some type of way that they're constantly trying to develop themselves to become a better individual, a better parent, a better uh, professional, um, whatever, you know, really all around addressing all the facets um, of your life. And also that you should have some kind of practice to uh, contemplate and stay in touch with where you're at with your feeling state, you know, are you experiencing a lot of anxiety? And then you can figure out what can I do to better uh, manage this, uh, you know, in my life. And so having some daily contemplation space, and that could be meditation or prayer, but it doesn't have to be. It's just involves being still and silent and being with yourself and with your thoughts and perhaps with source. And um, you can set intentions for that if there's something that you need to focus on, or you can keep it open and let your awareness um, open up to other things that you may not normally think about. So combining kind of all of those elements together, you can uh, really maximize your health and vitality. And uh, I'm trying to do that for myself uh, right now as well. Brilliant. It's kind of interesting that all the policies that they've implemented are, and all the fear is aimed at doing the opposite of that. That's a very it's excellent observation. 
And then when so people get then ill, I guess I guess I could give the instruction just do the opposite of what the authorities what tell you to. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's brilliant. So just last question: Where can people find you if they want to hear more? Because I certainly there's those are questions I could ask you if we had longer, and maybe you'll have to come on again, and I'll ask you them then. But if people want to find you, where can they look? Yes. Well, uh, please go to andrewkaufmanmd.com. That's my home base where um, everything uh, is. And uh, please sign up for my newsletter. But also I have um, a new uh, library, the True Medicine Library, which is a repository of all this kind of information, including some of the research articles, um, you know, all of my lectures and uh, also natural healing resources. And that's a true library. Sorry, true medicine library. Dot com. And then lastly, I just want to mention that uh, Tom Cowan and I are putting on a virtual conference uh, October 9th and 10th and the following weekend where we're focusing on the new biology. So we're essentially going to be highlighting all of the science that you won't hear about necessarily in the mainstream, although some of these people are mainstream professors. Um, but we're going to be you know, talking about water, biophotons. Uh, orgone energy, the human biofield, uh, all kinds of exciting things. I'm going to describe my own 30-day um, experience of purification and detoxification that I'm undergoing uh, right now. And uh, so it'll be a really great experience. And you can find out more about that on truehealingconference.com. Cool. And, um, you know, it is time for us to, you know, start taking responsibility for ourselves and throw off the shackles that are put on us through the mainstream medicine and conventional healing and and the policies that are implemented on us and I, I thank you for all the work that you've done in trying to uh, inform people and show people how they can do that so thank you well you're quite welcome uh daniel and thank you for having me here and giving me the opportunity to talk about this and uh, perhaps we'll do part two uh in the future brilliant look forward to it thank you mm -hmm.